welcome to Who the Fuck Writes It Monkeys, the podcast where we chat to interesting people about their favourite song from the titular lads from High Green, as well as much more. First up for week one, I'm joined by Matt Wilkinson. He's the host of the Matt Wilkinson Show over on Apple Music, as well as the former new music editor of NMA. During both spells, he's been privileged enough to speak to the band a couple of times, as well as hitting the road with them back in 2011 for an enemy cover story on their US Suck It and Sea tour. He regales us with a whole bunch of stories from that experience, like getting tackled by Alex Turner on the lawn of a mansion over in the States. He also takes us backstage at Glastonbury 2013, where he was with the band prior to and following their thunderous headlining performance. But before we get into all of that, he reveals his favourite song from their sixth album discography. So without much further ado, here's me and Matt Wilkinson talking all things Art and Monkeys. I'm going to go with Despair in the Departure Lounge and it obviously is a really difficult choice. I could have had about 10. I feel weird maybe not saying Cornerstone, which I think is possibly the best song Alex Turner has ever written. But Despair in the Departure Lounge, which was a B-side to the EP that came out between album one and album two, there is just something that gets me about that song every single time that I hear it. Even from the chords, it's only it's really simple. I think it's only got about four chords in it. They're so basic. You can literally imagine him sat on the end of his bed in his house in High Green, strumming the guitar, parents downstairs moaning at him from not like cleaning his room or whatever, and suddenly he comes up with this. And the poetry, the words to it, obviously take you somewhere else entirely because they are... And he, I realised this as I heard the song as well. I realised that, he, oh, he's singing about his life now. And this track came out in that period when they were already huge, but everyone said, well, is it just a one album wonder? Is the bubble going to burst? Or are they going to be with us for decades, this band? And have we, have we found the new Oasis or Nirvana or Smiths or, you know, an important band? It was kind of unclear at that point. And the great thing about Despair in the Departure Lounge is... He sums up his situation so well. There are so many beautiful lines on it. I got the lyrics up in front of me. Rodney and Delboy one. Oh, the Rodney and Delboy one is amazing because we've all been there. We've all seen that clip. Everybody from England has, and the UK has seen that clip. Everybody has had a moment in their life where they've resonated with that clip. And also, he says, got the feeling again, this time on the aeroplane. So you can see him. You're there with him in the aeroplane flying to wherever the next batch of gigs and he's got the TV, which is still a novelty at that point, TV in the back of the seat and he's, it, oh wow, it's got Only Fools and Horses on it. You can totally imagine Arctic Monkeys all being into those situations and I just love it because I think with Alex, right, he's very good at melancholy and melancholy is best when it's written by British songwriters. Americans can't really do me- melancholy that well People around the world can't really do it as well as we can, but British people can. Morrissey was amazing at it. Noel Gallagher was amazing at it. All of the great British songwriters, Ray Davies, they were all really good at writing about these feelings of melancholy and maybe being not quite understanding love, being quite downtrodden in life, insular, all of those feelings. And Alex sums it up so well. The lyrics are beautiful in this. I love that line where it says, yesterday I saw a girl who looked like someone you might knock about with and I almost shouted. I've been there, you know. I've been in that situation and it tugs at the heartstrings. You know what it's like when, you, when you've when you gone through a breakup or something like that or you can't get the girl that you want and 
and it really you go insular you look inside you know you 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 look in on yourself this song is the sound of that such an innocence about it too though and that's where the sadness comes from to a certain extent there is he's a little bit of a lost dog in it yeah he's a rabbit in the headlights and i think it's i think actually possibly the best line comes after that bit about shouting at the girl who looks like the girl that he wants and it's that line that says and then reality kicked in within us it seems as we become the winners you lose a bit of something and half wonder if you want it at all that's about that position the arctic monkeys are in as a band at that point i think that's saying we've been given everything that we've ever wanted we are on the cover of enemy we're number one we're headlining festivals but actually in order to get here and to stay here i have to give up my innocence do I really want this? He is at that point, he's literally at the edge of the cliff where he could turn back and go back to his parents' house in High Green and just, you know, do a Lee Mavers from the Lars and say, actually, music's not for me. I want a normal life. That's what Andy did, wasn't it? Which is possibly what Andy did. Yeah, I mean, I've never really worked it out. I'd love to interview him. And I know he's done bits and bobs recently where he's spoken about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I could never work out whether he was pushed out of the band because they weren't getting on or something, or whether he, it was his decision. I'm not too sure. I, my kind of impression of it was that it was just a little bit much for him. Which is understandable, because they were they were huge. They were bigger than the Libertines were on their rise. They were probably as big as the Strokes were, and I would say the Strokes were probably as big as Oasis were, but not for as long. Oasis were that big for three or four years, whereas the Strokes had it for like a year and monkeys probably had it for a year but that's the level we're talking about which is as big as it gets monkeys got it again though when am came out yeah they did that was what was They're so exciting bigger. yeah that was great because i think actually possibly my favorite monkeys album is suck it and see and again it's that melancholy thing that's the most melancholy record they ever released and it's a heartbreak record it is about him becoming single again as far as i can tell if you read into the lyrics it seems like that's what the situation is but it was such a left turn out of sucking sea to come back with am and, I, and you kind of knew like i was at nme at that point and we loved sucking and sea but i don't think it sold as many it's possibly their worst selling album i may be wrong on that so it was clear that well first two records huge Humbug is a bit of a left turn because it sounded so different, but it still sold a lot. And it had key tunes on it, like singles were massive. And then Suck It and See came out and it was more understated. And I think if they'd have come out with another record that sounded like Suck It and See, they would still be together as a band making great music, but we might not be here talking about them on a podcast. It might have just got a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller, which is kind of what happened to the Coral in a way. They never put a bad record out, but they went from being a band who were top three in the singles charts to just having a solid audience. Whereas what Monkeys did with AM is they managed to come back with a record that was as big as their debut album. Who else even does that? I can't really think of many other artists who do it. Not in that kind of world. More hip-hop, you can see that happening, but not in totally. the band world as much. Yeah, totally. You were on tour with them for the Suck It and See record for a little bit, right? That was when you went there with NME. Yeah. So I started at NME in 2008, which was around the time Humbug came out. I think Humbug was already out by that point and that was the one we were playing. And then I remember hearing Suck It and See in the office a few weeks before it came out and just falling in love with that record. I just think it's 
masterful Britpop songwriting, really. And I was still fairly new at NME. So the idea of doing an interview with Arctic Monkeys was unachievable. But by the time the end of that record came out, came about, um, and they'd been on tour for about a year and they moved to the, to the States properly at the start of that album. So the story had kind of grown a bit and changed a little bit. I'd been at NME for like, I don't know, a couple of years by that point, And I got the call to go on tour with them, which was amazing. I didn't have to pitch for it. I just, I can't remember why I got the call and no one else did. It still surprises me now because I was kind of a junior writer and it was, it was a dream job. I'd barely been to the States at that point, especially for work. I think the first US trip I did was a band called Sleigh Bells about a year before. And it was the first time I'd ever been to America. And what I noticed was there's no money in music by 2010, 2011, (laughs) in the music industry anyway. I think the five years before that, people from NME were flown out to do like a week on the road, all expenses paid, five-star hotels, you know, all that kind of jazz. When I did that Sleigh Bells trip, it was literally me. There wasn't even a PR at the other end. So I get to LA and I'm like, I don't even know anything about this city. I'm trying to walk around everywhere, which you can't do in LA. So I'd done that. And then the next trip I did was with monkeys. But again, there wasn't really any budget for it because that's just the way the industry was at that point, even though this was going to be a cover story and it's a big deal because it's monkeys. The only date we could do was Fort Lauderdale because I think it worked for us in terms of our print deadlines and for the band in terms of how busy they were and whatever. But the long and short of it is that me and Dean, the photographer, a guy called Dean Chalkley flew out on our own we weren't met by a PR or anyone the other end. We had to hire a car from Florida airport and drive to Fort Lauderdale. I'd never even heard of Fort Lauderdale at this point. I don't have, did you, do you know anything about Fort Lauderdale? No. I Did Louis Theroux not go there at one point in a documentary? It would That's make sense. The extent of my If he did, knowledge. it would make sense. And what I'll say about Fort Lauderdale is it's the brattier sister city to Florida. So Florida, everybody knows, is big and brash and very, very American and gung-ho. Fort Lauderdale is smaller, weirder, two hours down the road. It's a suburb, effectively. It's a suburb city. And we drive there and we get there late one night. I think we must have arrived at like 10 p.m. because we didn't go out anywhere, me and Dean. We just checked into our hotel and, and, and went to sleep and tried to beat the jet lag. And the interview is the next day. And we wake up and I open the curtains of my hotel. Haven't seen Fort Lauderdale yet because it was dark when we arrived. And I see all these people lying on the grass in front of the hotel, like hundreds of people. And I'm bleary eyed and I'm kind of trying to work out what it is. I'm like, is this some weird like flash mob thing or something? Or like, what are those people doing? And it took like a minute or two to realise, oh no, actually they're homeless people. And I've never seen that many homeless people collected in one place sleeping before. It was kind of like a tent city type thing. So that really opened my eyes. And I was like, wow, this place is kind of next level. In Florida, everything is perfect to the point where there's no soul. Nothing against anyone from Florida. I'm sure there are lovely places there. But Fort Lauderdale was gritty. And me and Dean went for a walk that morning to suss out some places to go and photograph the band. 
and it immediately it just looked amazing and i have to say on instagram i see so many pictures from that shoot reposted they're the ones where alex has got his quiff in full-on quiff style he was in 50s mode by that point yeah and he actually said to me he actually went midway through the photo shoot to find a toilet in a rest stop or something to go and apply more pomade to his hair (laughs) which i took the piss out of then but without realizing how um how seriously he took that and how great it looked as well because it worked um but anyway we me and dean went and, and sussed some places out and it was just it was mad it was there were a lot of trailer parks there and trailer parks i guess if you're british and you don't really know what they are they're they're probably the equivalent of quite kind of down and out council estates they're really where it's one step up from being homeless it's their mobile homes where people end up living and famously iggy pop grew up in in a trailer park as well they're very rough and ready and there were just a lot of them in fort lauderdale and weird locations and we scouted everywhere we walked with places that looked incredible in terms of architecture or backgrounds and we met with a band who I'd not met in person before, really, I don't think. And immediately, it was just, they were very welcoming. And I think it was the fact we were in Fort Lauderdale, we're in this quite odd place, and it's a bunch of Brits together. So it was like, ah, oh, come back to the show, come backstage after the show and we'll have some drinks. And don't worry, we're not just going to give you like half an hour interview time. Just come and hang out a little bit. Which we did for the whole day. And we drove around these locations and we went to some mad places. We found this disused this field, right, that had houses in it and it had all of these old aeroplanes and trucks that had been, like, burnt out and they were clearly not working and they were just left to sort of rot and die in this huge field. But people were living there as well. And I remember us doing photos, and you can these are some of the photos that get uh, reshared quite a lot because the band are, like, sat on this truck thing. And it just looks, it it looks quite sort of apocalypse now in a way. And me and Matt ended up sort of exploring a little bit. And we were knocking on people's doors because you could just tell that no one was there. And we were like, what are these houses? I remember actually opening a door like really gingerly, creaking door opens. And just stepping inside thinking like, is anyone in this house? And there were like possessions and stuff in it. And we kind of stepped inside. But you could tell no one had been there for ages because it was really dusty and weird. And it was just surreal and strange. And I've n- I'd love to know what that place was. I've no idea. It looked like an old film set or something, but it wasn't. So we had a great day out taking all of these photos. And Dean, obviously, I think I actually sent a brief to Dean before we left saying, all right, this is the rep. Basically, they've been on the road in America for six months. They live in America. They look like they could be straight out of a Levi's advert from the early 90s. We referenced a Clash interview that Penny Smith had taken the photos for in NME in the 70s where she went on the road with them alongside, I think, Nick Kent, another legendary NME old school journalist. Uh, I think they went on the road with the Clash in America in the 70s for like three weeks and ended up touring with Bo Diddley and stuff like that and just having the craziest time. And we kind of referenced that that article for us, we said, make it look like the clash on the road in the seventies with a hint of, you know, those classic Levi's adverts and stuff. And Dean, the photographer just went to town on it 
And the monkeys, in fairness to them, they were fully into it as well. I remember Matt also getting changed into leather pants at one point. <laughs> he was wearing jeans before, and then he was like, should I go and put my leather keks on? And we were like, what? You got leather trousers just with you in a bag? Uh, yeah, I guess so. And they had like tassels on them and stuff, and it was ridiculous. It was great. That doesn't sound like a great idea in the Florida heat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how he did it. I think, he, I think <laughs> I do you remember there being some banner about like, they'll take me 15 minutes to like stretch on, and then once I'm in them, I'm just in them for like the next two days. Was that your kind of, I mean, when you were first going to NME, was that your idea in your mind, your kind of dream idea of what being an enemy journalist was? Yeah, completely. I was obsessed with music. I grew up on all those bands that I mentioned previously, Oasis, Radiohead, Nirvana, Strokes, White Stripes, Libertines. That was like my, I obsessed over all of those bands. And I read articles where people went on the road with those bands. So there's a great book by a journalist called Paolo Hewitt called Forever the People, where he, I mean, God knows how he blagged this. He went on the entire Be Here Now tour with Oasis. They paid for him. He was just living with them in hotels and on the road and side stage for like 18 months. And then he wrote a book about it. It's amazing. And I read that book and was like, that's the kind of journalism that I want to do. This thing of being in weird places with bands and just telling those stories. And I did it a little bit at NME. Obviously, it's like, like I say, budgets weren't there. So the idea of even going on the road with someone for a week, you kind of had to fund it yourself. And I did that a couple of times with smaller bands, but no one liked monkeys, really. But what what happened on that Fort Lauderdale trip was a few interesting things happened, actually. So this is at the end of Suck It and See. And the gig was in a venue that was tiny, probably about a thousand people. But for Fort Lauderdale, that's probably as big as it gets. I think they're playing to like 10,000 people in New York and LA. And then in the weirder bits of America, probably like one, 2000. And the gig was really good. And they actually, I watched the sound check and they played a song, which has still never come out. And it was only instrumental, but I still, I can still kind of hum that song. I'm not going to do it because I won't do it anywhere near the justice it would deserve, but it was a good track and it didn't sound like anything on AM. They weren't in that stage yet. It sounded like, if you can imagine the midpoint between Suck It and See and AM. So they played this this great sort of Smithsy type, I don't know, quite explorative indie song, which was amazing to hear. And um, I've somewhere I've got a, a bootleg of that. I secretly recorded it, but God knows where it is, unfortunately. It's somewhere in a bag in my in a box somewhere. I should probably dig it out. So they did that. But then during the interview, I was I was asking Alex about well, where do you think you're going to go next? And there's no inclination that they're going to come up with AM. And I genuinely don't think they had thought that far yet, even though it's only about six months, I think, before they would have started recording it. So it's really weird that AM must have come really quickly and it must have surprised them, I think. I guess it's the same with anything in life, though. Like... I mean, if you think a year before you went to Apple Music, would you have known that that was going to be your next step? I sometimes think with bands, because they're always writing, sometimes they're guided by the songs, which obviously is what happened with AM. I think he, he ended up writing Are You Mine, which is po- possibly the first track from that record. And then Do I Want to Know is the key song from it. 
but they they just sound so different from Suck It and See. It's a complete different band almost. It's interesting though, because if you listen to the B sides from that kind of era, like You're So Dark, do you know that song? From Suck It and See era? No, it's AM on the uh, AM B sides, yeah. I know 2013 and I know a couple others. I can't remember You're So Dark actually. Because if you listen to a few of them, you can kind of, they almost feel like stepping stones. Like you understand why they were the B sides and you can see them kind of reaching from the toe. That's quite cool. The other thing that I'll say about Fort Lauderdale is, so after the gig, we go backstage and backstage in this venue is tiny. It's like a port cabin, basically. Rider isn't that excessive. It's like a bottle of tequila, which I think is what they're into at the time. They like making cocktails and, you know, crisps and beers and, and that's it. And that band Smith Westerns were there, who are a great band as well, who split shortly after that and then became Whitney, who are another great band. And, um, and we, were, we were hanging out and I kind of got on well with Alex. I have to say in the interview, kind of worked out that we were similar age and we went to some of the same gigs growing up. And I think that kind of thing always helps because you can kind of talk to people in that respect, almost like a mate down the pub or someone you went to school with and immediately there was a good good connection and we ended up going to this party at some guy's house which i wrote about in the nme article and i call him the cone king because the story is this guy had met alex somewhere months before and then said when you come to the fort lauderdale i'm gonna have a party at my house after the gig please come along my house is massive it's amazing and that's what happened. And suddenly we're, we're in this backstage room, just like playing tunes on a stereo. And this limo pulls up, but it's like a kind of limo that you rent in the UK for like a, a party for a bunch of 15 year old kids. It's like a cheesy limo <laughs> rather than like a Rolls Royce type thing. I remember all the band piled in the limo and we're like, come on, we're going to this party. Here's the address. I don't know who the guy is, but just come along. And then we, me and Smith Westers couldn't fit, so we had to like pile in a taxi, which is a bit, a bit sad. I'd have preferred to have got the limo. And we pull up to this house, and it is literally like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air house. It is just, it's probably the nicest house I've ever set foot in in my entire life. There were, it looked like the White House. It had a massive lawn out the back and a lake out the back with a full-on massive boat in it as well they did not do things by half these people it was huge and we have this party and i guess there were like 20 or 30 people there and initially there were the whole band and jeff their manager uh who's a lovely guy as well jeff was amazing on that trip and just total right guy for that band i think that was pretty much it and the funny thing is that all the, the rest of the monkeys, everyone apart from Jeff and Alex, left because they had to get a flight at like 8am the next morning. And Turner was having so much fun, just like kicking back and like we were, everyone was in the pool and getting drunk and, you know, just partying basically. Turner was like, fuck it, I'm staying. And Jeff stayed to kind of mind him, I guess, and make sure he got home eventually and he missed his flight to the next gig because we were still there at 8am the next morning <laughs> partying i can remember him rugby tackling me at one point 
on the lawn, like slow motion rugby <laughs> tackling me at 7am by Alex Turner, which is one of the more surreal moments of my life. That sounds like a dream. It was like, have you ever seen Almost Famous? Yeah, a long time ago, a few years back. So the scene in that, and it was not as extreme as this, and I don't want to, no one was on acid, but there's a scene in that where they all take acid and the guy in the band gets up on the roof and, and he's on acid and he jumps off into a swimming pool and it's really sketchy. Alex was not, I'm not, this is not correlating to Alex in any way, by the way, let's just make that clear. But I felt like the kid in Almost Famous where one minute you're kind of in an office writing journalism stories and the next minute you're at a party in a mansion in the middle of America with a really big band and it's just crazy. It was amazing. I remember you once said that he was one of the two smartest people that you'd ever interviewed. Yeah, him and Pete Doherty, which sounds funny because I know Pete Doherty has a lot of... People like to take the piss out of Pete, but actually Pete is a really intelligent guy. And the reason I said those two is because they are really poetic in the way that they talk as well. And obviously you can hear it in their lyrics. Pete's lyrics are amazing, like Alex's lyrics. They're very wordy. They get amazing rhymes that most people can't even come close to. And with both of them, what I've found, and I've been lucky enough to interview both of them several times in depth. So we're not just doing like 15 minute interviews. We sat down for an hour and it's private and you can really connect with someone. They say these things that they go over my head until I listen back. And I think, wow, that what you've just said there, that sentence about doing your washing on a Sunday night or something really inconsequential, the way that you've said it and the words that you've used are really poetic and you talk your lyrics. They naturally talk their lyrics. I imagine John Cooper Clark is the same. I imagine Morrissey is the same. Do you know what I mean? They kind of, I don't think they can help it. There's a, someone pointed it out to me the other day. There's a line in another monkeys interview that I did for Apple where we were at Oshaga Festival in Canada and we got Matt and Alex a few hours before they headlined. So it was a short interview and it was on camera. So it was kind of more, it changes things. When you put cameras there, obviously it's, it's not quite as intimate, but you can still connect with guys like that because they're, they're just good music people, Matt and Alex. They can talk about music really well. And Alex in that interview said something like, like Holyfield in the final round. Or something like that. <laughs> and the way that he said it, when you listen back, you're like, shit, that could, that literally, you could just drop that in a monkey's tune. It's the bit where they're talking about the single going to number one, isn't it? And they're down the pub. Yeah. And everyone starts cheering. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is another, which is a beautiful moment, actually. And I've had a couple of those chats with Alex where I sort of felt confident enough to say, your life's incredible. Do you ever just pinch yourself and just think, wow, how did I was a kid? a normal kid in school in Sheffield and now all of this has happened to me and it's he always gives great responses when you ask that question he's always very humble but you can see that it just totally delights me after the Sucking Sea tour interview that we did which we just we all got on the band and their management seem to like the piece. And, uh, and I think the thing with monkeys is they're really well managed and they don't let that many people into the inner circle. And as soon as they get someone on the press side who they feel they can connect with, you're kind of set. And 
they've done it with um, it's not just me you know you can see that they have people throughout the world in different countries and different languages that they they obviously they have a kinship with zane's another one yeah yeah totally i mean they go so far back with zane it's mad gonzo and um, yeah which i love i run i run back some gonzo clips every get a lot of them on youtube now aren't they yeah i think yeah. it looks so fun that show zane was amazing on it that was peak zane you kind of had that youthful energy about him yeah and when I um, when I came back off that trip from the Sucking Sea trip, it became slightly easier for me to get monkeys access. So I got the odd phoner with them, which beforehand we were struggling to get because they were just so big. And I think there was a thing of like, oh, it's cool. It'll take like 10 minutes. It's with Matt. You know him. Just do it. And, um, and we got some good... We got some good pieces from them and then when the new record came around correct me if i'm wrong here but i think are you mine came out obviously quite early and then do i want to know came out around the time of glastonbury can't remember if it was before it or just after and then the record dropped immediately after glastonbury like two weeks later so it was really close together and we knew right monkeys have to be our cover for glastonbury 2013 and i sent this pitch to Ian and Jeff, their management, saying, look, I know you're going to be on proper shutdown because normally what happens is when bands are touring, they don't do press. They do press before tour and then they go on tour so they don't have to mix the two. But with this Monkeys thing, obviously they've got the album coming out soon so they had to do a bit of both. And I sent this email to Ian and Jeff saying, can we shadow the band for the whole day? I know this access is going to be insane, but the piece will be brilliant. And they agreed to do it. We couldn't believe it. And they were like, yep, you can have a phone with Matt the night before. You can do an interview with all the band the morning of at their hotel. You can meet them just before they go on stage, like half an hour before. And you can meet them after they come off stage, like five minutes after as well. And I'm like jumping for joy. It's me and Dean again are shooting it. And we're like, fuck, man. Even like... It's just insane, like Glastonbury headline band, like to get that kind of access was beyond my wildest dreams. And and it was amazing. And I'd heard the record once at this point. I heard it in Domino in their office. And I just knew it's like, well, this is the best rock record of the decade. There's no doubt about it. This is a game changer. And that's why we went so overboard on it. And in those interviews that we did, Turner did his famous line where he said, oh, it's like, Ike Turner with a bowl cut riding a Stratocaster across the desert or whatever that that <laughs> line is, which I just think obviously he pre-thought that because he said it in a few interviews. But at that point, I'd never heard it. And I was like, wow, that's the Paul quote for the thing. That's And I think we did put it on the cover. And I was just like, I was so into everything they said in that interview. They were amazing. They fully had this aesthetic for AM. They knew it was good, basically. They knew it was really good. So they knew that their interview game had to be good as well, which is possibly why we got all that access on that day. And actually what happened is we got so much content that we ended up splitting it over two different issues, which we genuinely hadn't thought we were going to do. Normally in these interviews, you get 20 minutes and you're kind of struggling to 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 fill like 10 pages sometimes but with this it was like i went back to mike the editor and i was like you know what i reckon we can do like 20 pages we do 10 pages about glasto and i think i've got enough to do another cover in two weeks time 
all about AM, which is what we did. And I think we even did a third one like a week later, which certain people like your vices and whatever started taking the piss at that point. But I stand by it because that record was huge and it demanded that kind of attention. And I've got to say those interviews pre and post the gig, they're only short. I only got like four or five minutes with them. And we're literally like backstage at Glastonbury. So it's chaotic. They're in this little bubble. It's properly like, you are in the eye of the hurricane because with them it's quite calm, but you're just aware that everything going on around them is mental. And it's quite interesting because before they go on, you can hear nerves in their voices. You can hear them. They're just a little bit shaky. They're not saying they're shaky or nervy. They're saying the opposite being like, nah, it's fine. We've done it a million times, but you can just hear a slight difference in their voices. And then after the interview, after the gig, sorry, I go backstage. I'm led into this room it's like Fort Knox to get in there, you know. And there's literally about, I don't know, five, ten people there. I couldn't believe it. I thought there'd be loads of people. There's like band, management, our photographer, me, and like a couple other people. And I think even Emily Evis might have been there. And I remember there was a massive bottle of champagne, one of those like three-foot bottles that you get that you can't even lift. And a cake of the pyramid stage as well <laughs> a massive <laughs> cake and like congratulations you've just headlined the pyramid stage thanks from emily and michael evis it was amazing and i spoke to all the band and I had a drink with them and they were just sky high they just they were it was like they're on another planet in terms of the atmosphere and how happy they were and you could just tell that they were loving it. And it's, it was so good, man. It's such a good thing to do. How would you compare the aura around them at that point to 2006 when the first album dropped? As big, but totally different. Well, maybe not as big because 2006, it was like even my mum knew who they were. But it was, it was massive. And it was the fact that that record had real weight to it. And I'm not saying the ones previously didn't, but it was just undeniable. Every single song on it was amazing. The sound was so different. You could clearly see, you can, you can cut the DNA up on that album like it is a cake. You know, you can say, right, these are the backing vocals like from Tupac or Dre or whatever. These are the 70s Motor City rock influences. These lyrics are John Cooper Clark inspired or covered. You know, it's so easy to get into that realm of saying, well, this one references Velvet Underground a little bit. But what holds it all together is them and this story. And I think it also became quite tantalising for fans as well, because as Brits, we love looking over and seeing what America is up to. We get little Britain fever a little bit. We want to be taken seriously by America and A, Monkeys became quite big at that point, And it was like, wow, you know what? They actually, they're kind of broken America. Probably the last Brit band to do that were Coldplay. And they're kind of, you know, they're easily selling out Madison Square Gardens and places like that. And they're like topping festival bills. So that was cool. But also the fact they'd moved to LA and they just jumped headfirst into that environment. And I know that they get stick from that. And I know there's that clip of people like Liam Gallagher saying, oh, don't get it, it's his voice has changed or whatever. But they did it. They made that choice to do it. They lived it. And they ended up 
coming out trumps because they wrote a five out of five or a 10 out of 10 record about that experience. And arguably I would say tranquility is almost like the hangover record. And that's 10 out of 10 in my opinion as well. Tranquility is almost looking back and processing what happened with the record prior to it. I think so. Yeah. Which is going to be really interesting to see where he goes next. Cause I'm not sure. I know Matt still spends a lot of time in LA, but I'm not sure if the others do. I wanted to touch briefly on, I listened back to your show, you did it at the start of the year where you basically looked at the last 15 years of Art and Monkeys, kind of starting with the anniversary of the debut record and then examining where they went from there. And there was a few times you did these transitions I loved, like you did a Black Sabbath mashup with Arabella, kind of drawing that parallel, and I think you went from one point perspective to the Beach Boys as well, again, kind of just making that connection. At what point does that come into your mind as a listener? At what point do you draw those threads between what you're hearing and the influences that not everyone would pick out? Like they're there and you can hear it, but it's something a little different. Um, when I'm listening to the music, I literally when I heard Tranquility for the first time, or I don't, maybe not first time, but like the first few times, <clears throat> the references that were jumping out to me were things like God Only Knows by the Beach Boys or the whole of Pet Sounds really. And... I kind of thought, well, at one point I really want to make a thing of this on the radio. And actually when it came out as well, we did do something quite similar then for about an hour on the show where I played tracks from the record. And then we played a really great Wu-Tang Clan song, which is quite orchestral as well. And I'd be amazed if Turner and co hadn't heard that track and thought, even though that's a hip hop song, this what they've done instrumentally there with the samples Let's let's try and replicate that. That's funny because I know Rizzo's a fan of that album. Oh, I know, yeah. I read that thing about Batphone. <laughs> I could not believe it. It's the fact he picked Batphone as well, which is one of the most obscure tracks on that record. He didn't go for one of the singles. He went deep and he really analysed it. I reckon Turner would be so happy with that. Oh, for sure. Well, he's a big hip-hop guy, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And you can tell it in his cadence and, and the way that he... Even now, he almost half-raps... And I know he can sing. He's kind of like, his singing voice has changed so much. He's really discovered how to sing on the last two records. This, similar to Damon Albarn, actually. Damon had a change around about, what's the Blur record that's got that song, Countryside Ballad Man? I think it's 13. Yeah. Or the self-titled one. Can't remember. But that track is like, if you listen to that track, that's the first time Damon sings with a falsetto, which he does all the time on Gorilla's stuff now. And it's like suddenly three, four albums in, he discovers this new voice. And Alex is similar, really, I think. I think you've got to, though, to kind of keep it interesting for yourself, though. Yeah, totally. And Alex did that with, with Tranquility, where he recorded on that Tascam desk, Tascam 388, I think, which is, as far as I can understand it, basically that is the kind of eight-track old-school recording desk that bands in the 60s would have used so it's not as good as the stuff the Beatles and the Beach Boys were using because they'd have had the cream of the crop but it's probably next level down and I think he had one of these in his house that he bought off eBay probably or I don't know Craigslist in in America and I don't think they go for that much they're only about 1500 quid two grand which you know for a major band is no expense at all I think that desk is the key thing in that record tranquility because it probably limited alex he had to start thinking in eight different tracks he played a lot of the instruments himself on the demos so he became a drummer and he would be playing piano which he hadn't really done before 
And that, you know, if that isn't pushing it, I don't know what it is. Yeah, well, you put those limitations on yourself and then it just kind of, it's like, you know, what they say about compressing a diamond. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I love that record as well. I think it's, it's quite funny because when it first came out, people were like, oh, it's just too, too weird and too meandering. But going back to it now is like, I don't know, it's like putting a, your favourite sweater on or something. It's so good. It's ageing like a fine wine. Yeah, it is. And I wonder whether AM will age the same or whether because AM was more immediate. Sometimes immediate records don't age quite as well. But then that first album's held up. Yeah. And it was immediate in the same way. It has. They kind of, well, mate, oh, I don't know, mate, I was going to say they all have, but then I suspect Suck It and See might sound weird in 10 years' time because it's it's produced like a guitar record, whereas AM is produced like a hip-hop record. So the bass is really big. But I wonder if Suck It and See will take on a vintage sound because it's really just about kind of capturing that live room atmosphere in the same way that those kind of punk records from like the 70s have that feel about them. It's very Buzzcocks, isn't it, that record? Yeah. Power pop. But some of my favourite songs Monkeys have ever done are on that record. I've got to say, I think Hellcat is just brilliant. That's like the sister song to Cornerstone in a way. Yeah, a little bit. They still play Don't Sit Down Live as well, don't they? Yeah. It's kind of a mainstay in the set, yeah. I think that'll be there for ages as well. I think that's pretty much the only one from that record that that made the cut. Because you can kind of hear a little bit of AM in it. It's got that growl to it. It's It's one of the first tunes they did... Well, actually, I guess that's maybe wrong because Humbug had a lot of this, but it sounds quite uh, sort of Queens of Stone Age. But again, because of the title, because of the lyrics, and because of the fact that he does the Macarena in the middle of it, it's it's <laughs> undeniably comedic in a kind of British, slightly off-kilter, beatly way, which he does perfectly, and they do perfectly as a band. Do you feel more excited about where they're going now than you have ever before, do you think? After the left turn, that was tranquility. Well, I feel as excited as I have been since Suck It and See. To be honest, after Humbug, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was at a low ebb, but I was, I was probably my least interested in them that I have been since the very start because it was like, oh, cool. It kind of sounds like they're going to go in a kind of desert rock type way. Well, I love desert rock, but I definitely prefer things that are more grounded in british music i guess certainly with monkeys. Right, what you know yeah and then i heard suck it see and it was like sucked back in straight away and then from that point i've been as excited as i am now to see what happens next i would guess right that seeing as they're all mid to late 30s now this is getting boring but let's just be pragmatic about it they, they're mid to late 30s three of them i think have got kids I guess there's a point where bands tend to sort of go in two directions at this point. They either kind of take their foot off the gas completely or they find a way of making family life work and band life work. And I genuinely don't know what monkeys will do. You never know. They could just be like, you know what? We've done it for 17 years. We have completed it. Should we just chill after this next record and be family people? They might do that. So we might have a kind of limited time left or they might just continue forever and we could be back here in 10 years' time saying, wow, they're on album number 12. 